For those who don't know me, my name's Nick Van Ruth. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Hills Baptist. And I want to introduce you to God. Whoa. Ooh. This is God. I really love him. He, he's my everything. He is such a good God to me. Uh, fits really nicely in this box. And I take him with me everywhere. Well, may, maybe not everywhere. You know, some, there's some places, you know, I, I don't want to get him dirty. And so, you know, I won't, I won't bring him there. And some of my friends don't really like God. So if I'm seeing them, I tend to like leave him in the car, you know, that kind of thing. But it works out well for me. You know, I love bringing him to church. That's really good. You know, we have a great time at church together. And sometimes it's even just convenient leaving him there for the week. And I come back the following week and he's there, ready to go. It's fantastic. But to be honest, I've been a bit disappointed in God, how he's been handling this whole COVID situation around the world. Like, surely... You know, if I were God, if I were him, I would have just healed everyone straight away. Or certainly not caused so much division and chaos and turmoil throughout the world. Like, what's the deal with that? Now, of course, this all sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? To, to, to refer to God in, in such a way, constrained in a box. Yet we all do that, don't we? We try to interpret and understand God through through our worldview, through our understanding of how the world works. We define God uh, for ourselves. We, make, we, we try and fit God into a box. We try and fit God into our lives. And I think what we need today, and what the church needs, what Hills Baptist needs, what the, 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 particularly the Western church needs, every, every person needs, is a fresh vision of who God is. We need to look past who we want Him to be, who we think Him to be, to who He actually is, and realize He is so much bigger than the box we try and fit Him into. That's the scenario uh, that Job finds himself in. We're going to be looking at a passage in the book of Job. Now, that's quite a long uh, you know, quite intimidating book from the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever ventured through reading Job. It's a really interesting book. It's, it's interesting and confusing where it fits in the Israelite history. It's also really interesting and confusing because it raises all these questions and really doesn't offer very many answers at all. But it has a lot to say about God. And the story, how the story goes is Job uh, is a righteous man. He, he's um, very prosperous. He's got a large family, lots of herds and cattle and possession and, and really happy man and very, um, you know, he, he loves God, he fears God. And the adversary, Satan, comes along to God and he says, this Job fellow, he, he fears you, but I bet he wouldn't if he had all that taken away. Let me test him and, and see what happens. And God says, all right, you go for it. And uh, Job's, all of Job's herds uh, are stolen. His servants are killed. His family was having a feast in a house, and a great wind came and toppled the house over and killed everyone. And so he had all of that taken from him. And yet Job still worshipped. 
It said, uh, he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now Satan came back to God and said, Oh, look, the only reason he's still worshiping you is because you haven't let me touch him yet. Like his health, he's still healthy. And God says, All right, go for it. And so Job develops all these. Uh, blisterous boils all over his body, and he can do nothing else except sit in the ash with a bit of clay, trying to scratch away at it and, and trying to ease that, that itch and that pain and that turmoil. And it, and it says, even in that, where he'd lost health and wealth and family and everything, in all this, Job did not sin, it said it says. Now, often um, people... It seems, you know, talking about the book of Job, people don't really read past that point. And there's actually a whole other 40 chapters after that. Because that's not the end of the story. Job, uh, three, three of Job's friends come along, uh, and then together with Job, they try and uh, work out and make sense of why he's in this position. Why is, why is all this injustice befallen Job? Why is he suffering like this? And they enter this dialogue trying to make sense of it, trying to make sense through the lens of their box, their understanding. And, uh, and how it goes is uh, Job starts off um, lamenting of his position. You know, curse me because I'm in so much pain and turmoil. And he's honest and raw about it. Then one of his friends, Eliphaz, comes along. I love the names, by the way, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Eliphaz comes along and says, Job, you're obviously guilty. It's because you've sinned in some way, and God is punishing you because of your sin. Job says, no, I'm not. I'm innocent in all this. Then Bildad comes along and says, well, Job, this is how retribution works. You must have done something wrong. Job says, I know how the world works, but I can't accept that this is what's happening now. Zophar comes and says, Job, devote yourself to God and repent of your sin. And Job says, I haven't sinned. I hope that God will restore my relationship with him before I die. Eliphaz comes back for round two. You are guilty. God punishes the wicked, and now he's punishing you. And and Job says, I need protection from God. I need an advocate to come and, and to defend me. Bildad comes along and says, give it up. God, uh, you are wicked and doomed. God is punishing you. God does not know you. He is not your friend. And Job says, God is the one who's messed up my life, not me. Surely someone will rise to vindicate me. So far comes your sin is pride, and God has judged you as wicked. Job doesn't really respond to him, but he, he starts to complain. God's system of retribution, his system of justice is broken. It's broken. Eliphaz comes again. He says, repent. Repent and be restored. Then after all this experience, you can write a book about it. And Job says, look around. How could I possibly think of myself? In all this. Then Bildad comes 
and says, face the facts. Who could possibly be right before God? And Job says, God is all-powerful, and he brings order to chaos in the world, but not in my life. I am God's victim, his plaything, and you will be too. So in this development of this dialogue, uh, Job's friends and Job are all trying to make sense of his suffering through the lens of their understanding. And his friends are blaming Job. Oh, surely Job has sinned in some way. That's why he's experiencing all this. But Job grows to blame God. His worship turns to worry. And his worry turns to concern. And his concern turns to complaint. And his complaint turns to accusation against God. Because none of them truly understand who God is. Job and his friends are trying to fit God into their world, into their understanding, trying to fit God into their box to make sense of what's going on, and then judging God based on that. And through all this dialogue, it goes round and round, till finally, God speaks. God responds to the accusations made against him. He speaks to Job through a storm. And he has two speeches. And the first one, he, he uh, asked Job a whole series of questions, like, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I put the stars in their place? Where were you when I filled the oceans? Where were you as I sustain all things? Really highlighting God's power and his sovereignty over all of creation. And he calls Job out. Answer me. What are you going to say to these questions? And Job is silent. He won't respond. And God does not accept that. He's not satisfied. With, with silence. And so he speaks again through the storm, a second speech. And this is the speech that I'd like to focus on tonight. And it's broken up into three parts. The first is about justice. The second part is about the behemoth. The third part is about the, the Leviathan. And we're just going to look at what he has to say about justice and the Leviathan. You can read about the behemoth in your own time later on. But if you have a Bible, open it up to Job chapter 40, We've just raced through the book uh, in the Nick Van Ruth paraphrase version. <clears throat> and we'll read from verse 6 through to 14, and then skip ahead to 41 and read that chapter. And this is the Lord speaking to Job out of a storm. Now, it's unlikely he had a Canadian accent, but just, just go with it. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all those who are proud and bring them low. Look at all those who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in all the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. 
chapter 41. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you pull a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shields, tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between them. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from the boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. Strength resides in its neck. Dismay goes before it. The folds of its flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. Its chest is hard as rock, hard as lower millstone. When it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron, it treats like straw, and bronze, like rotted wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Sling stones are like chaff to it. A club seems to it but a piece of straw. It laughs at the rattling of the lance. Its undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. It makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. No one would, sorry, one would think that the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all who are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. This is the speech that God says to Job through the storm. And in the first one, he calls Job out. Job's been accusing of God of injustice, and he calls Job out. Who would discredit my justice? Who, who would condemn me to justify yourself? And he, and he says, can you do it? Can you do it? Well, you know, garner up, stand up, put on your armor, put on your clothes, go, and you do it. You try and administer justice. You try and... 
uh, you know, defeat evil once and for all. It's a bit like the movie, uh, if you've ever seen it before, Bruce Almighty. Who's seen Bruce Almighty? All right, a lot more tonight than this morning. Uh, although it is a fairly old movie. Um, in that movie, Bruce is, is not happy with how God is answering prayers. And so God actually then comes down onto earth in the form of Samuel, and Samuel Jackson, as he, as he does in uh, Hollywood. And uh, he hands over to Bruce all of, the, uh, all of his uh, God power. And then Bruce has the ability and the responsibility of answering prayers. And initially, they all come in as a quick stream of uh, letters, and that fills his house to the brink. And then it comes in as post-it notes and covers every single surface of his house. And then he, that's too much for his, him to handle. So then he decides, I'll put it all on a computer and deal it, with it digitally. And so he's, it's all on one computer, uh, 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 lines and lines and lines and lines of prayers. And he just say, says, select all, yes. And it doesn't take long at all for the whole world to descend into chaos. I just realized it's not Samuel L. Jackson. It's um, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't fit. <laughs> Morgan Freeman. Anyway, God isn't Morgan Freeman, just to be really clear, or Samuel L. Jackson. The point of that whole movie, though, is clear, that we can't be God. We, we can't do His work. No one on earth is, has the ability to do God's work. No one on earth has the ability to administer justice. No one on earth has the ability to defeat evil. And that's what God calls Job out for. Can you administer justice? Can you humble the proud? No, you can't. And then Job, uh, sorry, God moves on to talk about these two magnificent beasts, uh, the behemoth, you know, a mythical creature of the land, and the leviathan, uh, a mythical creature of the deep. And he brings Job into the depths of the ocean to confront him with the, one of the most feared creatures of the time, the very thing of nightmares. And he says to him, can you catch Leviathan? Can you catch him? Can you take out your rod, throw the line into the ocean, and catch Leviathan? And I love how God, you know, really layers it on. Can you, can you have him come and beg you for mercy, the Leviathan? Would he come to you to beg for mercy? Or, or can you make it uh, a pet, like a bird? And I love this. Can you... Uh, can you put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Effectively, can you capture it and bring it and, uh, like it's a little puppy so that all, all the women in your house get all excited about how cute it is? Of course not. It's a leviathan. Can you fill its hide with harpoons can you, uh, or its head with fishing spears? If you were to lay a hand on it, you would never do that again because the leviathan is a terrible, horrible scary, horrifying creature. 
He says, I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and graceful form. His back is like a whole series of shields, completely impenetrable. He, he breathes fire. Iron and bronze are like straw to him. You think of how weak and fickle straw is. That is what bars of iron are to Leviathan. Can you stand up to Leviathan? And the whole point of this comes in verse 10 and 11. God makes his point very clear. No one is fierce enough to rouse Leviathan. Who then is able to stand against me? Who is able to stand against God? Who, can, who has a claim against God that, that he must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to him. God asked Job to administer justice, but he can't. He asked Job to stand up and defeat Leviathan, but he can't. But God can. So how does Job respond? After uh, seeing this, this vision of God as, as so much bigger and greater than he, than he imagined, how does Job respond? Well, he does three things. He gets rid of his box, he repents, and he submits. If you have your Bibles open again to 42, you should already have them open, and let's read the first six verses there. How does Job respond? How should we respond as we see who God truly is? Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours could be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When God calls Job out and, and shows Job precisely how big he is, even bigger than the most scary and horrible thing that Job could imagine. How does Job respond? When Job sees God for who he truly is, how does Job respond? He throws out his box. He says, he acknowledges that he was speaking without knowing. He was interpreting God based on his own limited and deficient understanding. He tried to fit God into his box without realizing God is so much bigger than the box he was trying to fit him in. He said to God, I had heard of you. I heard you. There was things I understood, things that I, I knew. And that, you know, that helped me you know, figure out the dimensions of the box. But now I see. Now I see. Job hadn't yet looked beyond the God who he wanted him to be to the God that he actually is. He hadn't yet looked beyond the God who he wanted God to be to the God who actually is. And how often we do that too. But once we see God, realize who he is, 
we will understand. We won't understand the answers, but we will understand that God has the answers. We'll see how He is the creator of the world. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is awesome. He's bigger and stronger than our worst enemies. Whatever, whatever that haunts you in your nightmares, whatever holds you down with anxiety, whatever, whatever your deepest fear is, God is bigger than that. He is greater than that. He's bigger than the box we try and fit him into. And it's, you, we're led to believe that God has to work in a certain way because that's, that's what we think and that's what we want or it's what culture says is right or wrong. And, and then we, we're led to believe that justice and righteousness and retribution work in a certain way and it's, and it's formulaic. That if we do these good things, then God will bless us. Or if, we do, if someone else does these bad things, then he'll judge them. And when we don't see that, we think God has failed. But God doesn't work like a formula. God is not a formula. He's a person. It's more nuanced than that. And so when Job sees God and understands that God is so much bigger than the box he tried to fit him in, he repents and he submits. It says Job despised himself. He despised the words he used. He despised the attitude he had against God. He, and he repents. He bows down before God in dust and ashes. I think it's no coincidence that almost every time someone is confronted with, with a vision of God, whether that's Jesus being revealed as God or, or a vision or a sign of, of God, people fall flat on their face in awe and reverence at God's power. His majesty. And I think what, what, what happens to Joel, because he, he realizes just how big God is, he moves from what I'll call Disney princess theology to gospel theology. Now let me explain what that is. Disney princess theology. That's where I am the main character of my narrative. And it's, you know, the, the, the storyline of my life is for me to get a happy ending a good result to my life. And God is my fairy godmother who comes along and he dresses me in nice things and he, he provides nice things for me to do and, and a, a great adventure to go on and he'll come and he'll help me find my Prince Charming and lead me to my happy ending, my happily ever after. And so that's a God we like. That's a God that, that is convenient for us. That's a God who will solve all my problems. And our response to a God like that is to, to wait for God to sort out my life and to, to, to solve all of my problems. But that's not who God is. Gospel theology is seeing God for who He truly is, realizing that God is sovereign, powerful. He's someone to be feared above everything else. And our response is to repent and submit to Him. And it's gospel theology, good news theology, because who God is. Because we repent and we submit to God, it's a God who loves us. And His ways, His plans are so much better than ours. Not only is God bigger than our box, He's better than our box. And there's something a little bit deeper, 
underneath the surface in our passage. You know, when we read about the behemoth and the Leviathan, a question that scholars have been arguing for, for years and years is, what do they represent? You know, was it actually, you know, is that dinosaurs from back then? Or is it, is it the hippo and the alligator? Or is it mythical creatures? And uh, in, at the time, in the ancient Near East, when Job was written, uh, very often uh, mythical creatures were, were written and, and told about and used to describe uh, greater problems that society faced. It was disease or chaos, injustice, death. And so the, the Leviathan represents something deeper than just an animal, just an animal to be beaten. And you might remember that in Hebrew culture, and actually all of the ancient culture, water and oceans represented chaos and evil and everything wrong with the world. You can't control the ocean. You go out on the ocean, there's no guarantee you'll come back. And that's what Job was experiencing. The death of his family, his servants killed, disease. He was experiencing evil and chaos and injustice. And the one behind all that was the adversary, was Satan, the one who brought evil into the world. And I think it's no coincidence that throughout the Bible, Satan is depicted as a serpent, as a beast, as a dragon. And I think the real clincher, the real thing that convinces me that, that the Leviathan represents something much deeper is the very last line. It describes Leviathan as the king over all who are proud. And that is a description used for the devil. God calls Job out to bring justice, to defeat evil. And he says, can you beat these two beasts? So the challenge for Job, can he defeat the enemy of justice? Can he defeat evil? And of course, he can't. We've established that very clearly. But the question comes to us is, okay, well then, how will that happen? God can do it. How will he do it? How will he bring justice? How will God defeat evil? Who will come and slay Leviathan? Jesus came. Jesus came. And he didn't come against the devil with swords or spears or, or uh, lances or javelins. He came against the devil with a cross. He submitted himself to the greatest injustice to achieve justice for the world. He entered into the world of suffering and injustice and evil in order to take that on himself and to, to die a sinner's death so that he could take on our sin and our brokenness and our evil that's in us so that we are freed from the guilt, freed from the shame, freed from everything that separates us from the God of life and love. And he didn't just pay for our sin on the cross. He defeats death. On the third day, he rose from the dead, and he defeats death once and for all. And for anyone who trusts in him, we too defeat death through the power of Christ, through the power of the Spirit. And he promises us a place with him in, in his eternal kingdom, a place where there will be no pain, no suffering, no tears, 
the description of heaven is really interesting. It says the ocean was no more. No more is there chaos or evil or anything that, that all the Leviathan represents. It's gone. It's defeated once and for all. And so no matter what we might be going through now, no matter what we, what we might be experiencing, we have a promise from God that he's got something so much better in store for us. Paul in Romans 8, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, even things might not work out how we want or how we want things to happen. But what God has in store for us is so much better. God is better than the box we try and fit him into. And we know that. We know that. We know the full story of the Bible. And yet, and yet we still try to fit God into our box, to fit him into life, to nicely go along and try and bring God along with us in a way that suits us, that's convenient to us. We try and live our lives and, and uh, to try and hang on to our problems and deal with them our way. We, we still identify as victims, even though through Christ we are victors. Instead of confessing sin, knowing that the guilt and shame has been taken and spent and dealt with, we cling on to it. We hide it. We indulge it. We still try to get our lives in order so we can live up to the expectations we put on ourselves or the expectation culture puts on us or the expectation that our church puts on us. Rather than to live up to the expectation God puts us on us, which is that we are a child of Him, a child of God. We need to realize that we need to stop trying to control our lives, take control of our lives, but to give it up to the one who is in control. We've been trying to fit God into our box and fit God nice, fit God nice and neatly into our own lives. But we need to fear God and fear of the Lord a principle very common in Scripture. Fear of the Lord is not trying to fit God into our world, but to understand our place in God's world, to realize that God doesn't belong to us, we belong to God. And once Job gets this true vision and he realizes that God is so much bigger than the box he's been trying to fit him in, it leads him to repentance and submission. It leads him from moving away from this Disney princess theology to gospel theology, trusting and submitting our lives to the God of the universe, the God who loves us, the God who sent his own son to die for us. And I wonder as I begin to, to, to wrap up, what does our image of God ref reflect? How does that reflect in our lives? How does that work out in how we live our lives? What does, what does our image, our understanding of God say about or come out in how we pray or worship or obey? Or to put it another way, how does how we pray, worship, and obey say about our understanding of God? You know, it's interesting, the very first thing that Job does after he repents and submits is he prays for his friends. God rebukes the friends, and he says, go to Job, and he'll pray for you. And if we understand God is the king of all things, the creator of the universe, sovereign and powerful over all things, 
then we'll come to him in prayer. It's no use praying to a God that we've constructed, because he can do no better than us. But to pray to the God of universe, who can do all things, that is worthwhile. That is powerful. If we truly knew God, then the most well-attended event that a church would run would be the prayer meeting. If we truly knew God, the most important part of our day would be the time spent on our knees in prayer. Praying, God, show me your glory. Bring me into your plan. Do your work in this world. Do we pray like we believe? Do we worship like we believe? You know, Job's worship, though it started well, it turned into complaint and accusation. Things got bad for him. His, his worship got pretty weak. And I wonder, do we need a return to worshiping God in truth? Worshiping not because, you know, we feel like it or there's a great atmosphere being built by the band or, or you know, we're particularly happy on that day, but worshiping because of who God is, because of His character and what He's done. We've, in the, um, in the worship team, we've been uh, working through this series called Worship Matters in our monthly uh, meetups. And in it, Bob Coughlin talks about uh, worshiping passionately. And he observes that everyone gets passionate. Every, we all get passionate about something. Might be sport, might be uh, shopping or food, that's certainly mine, uh, or money or, you know, so, you know, whatever. We all get passionate about something. And Bob says, all right, take that passion, turn it up a few knots, notches. That's what God deserves. That's what belongs to God. Our greatest passionate devotion, and worship. That is what God deserves. That is who He is, worthy of our worship beyond anything else in this world. So how are we worshiping? Are we too comfortable? Are we too considerate or polite in, in what we do? And I'm not saying that everyone needs to get rowdy and you know, throw their hands up. I'm saying we need to be passionate. Sing loudly. You know, we don't just put on a band and sing songs to, to entertain. We put on a band and sing songs to facilitate worship, to sing. And we've got to sing even louder while we've got these masks because you can't really hear. So come on, let's do it. How does our understanding of God come out in how we respond to what He says? When we read His Word and we come up against something that rubs up against our worldview, our perspective, how we live, and maybe it's what God has to say about gossip or uh, our behavior or conflict or sex or identity or money. And we think, oh, that's a bit inconvenient. That doesn't align with, with my values, my understanding of how the world works. That's inconvenient. I won't, I won't follow that. Or I'll reinterpret that to make it fit into what I think and what culture and society says today. But when we read what God has to say, we, we, we can't uh, reinterpret God's Word based on our worldview, but we reinterpret our worldview. We challenge our worldview based on His Word. Because which one's constant? Which one's consistent? The ever-changing, chaotic society, cultural worldview, our own understanding and worldview, what we believe and think about things, or God's eternal, everlasting 
constant word. As God, as God reveals to Job who he is, he gives Job a revelation through this speech of just how big God is. Job repents and he submits. He fears God. And so as we understand who God is, as we, we hear and see who God is, how are we to respond? What do we do with our box? We throw it away. We get rid of it. Stop trying to understand God in light of our own limited and deficient understanding. Stop trying to challenge God based on our own uh, criteria that we build up, but to submit and realize that God is bigger than the box we try and fit him into. And he is so much better because he he's a God who loves us. He's a God who loved Job and restored him, not in the way that Job expected, but he did it. And God's going to restore us. Those who trust in him, we repent and submit. God will restore us, not in the way we might want or think. You know, it might not work out for us in this world. Things might still be hard and challenging. But, but that's not the point, that, that we end up happy. It's, it's God is sovereign and, and he's to be glorified. And so us being faithful even through the suffering brings glory to the God. Because we admit that there's something out there beyond ourselves that is greater, that is bigger, that is better than what we want in our situation. And so what are we going to do with our box? As we see God, are we trying to fit Him into our understanding, into our worldview, into what we think and feel and want? We're going to realize that God is so much bigger, so much better than the box we try and fit Him into. I wonder who needed to hear this today, tonight. I needed to hear this. This is something I need to be constantly reminded. I think we all need to be constantly reminded. And that's what worship is, is reminding ourselves, reminding others who God is. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. For Job, uh, for Jesus, we thank you that you weren't content with just leaving this world as it is, and you came to defeat Leviathan, to defeat evil in a way no one expected. God, you did it so much better than any one of us would do, or even all of us combined. You have done it better, greater. You are the God of the universe. You know what you're doing. And God, we pray you would help us trust in you, trust in your plan, trust in your power. God, help us to fear you, that we would not try and fit you into our lives, that we would understand our place in your world, and we would love you and serve you and seek to make you known, that we wouldn't be embarrassed by you, but we would be proud and in awe of you. Let us not fear anything else more than we fear you, because you are God. You're sovereign and powerful. You create all things. And so our only possible response really is to worship and to serve and to obey and to love you.
Help us to do that, Lord. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. During the week, uh, Craig um, shared with the staff a video, a music video, um, uh, the song So Will I, a hundred billion times. And I, I thought this is such a powerful way to, to, to finish off the sermon. To, it kind of says the same thing I've said, but from a different perspective of that understanding of fear in God, understanding our place in God's world. Therefore, what should our response be? So we're going to watch this uh, video uh, together. And it's, it's, it's really well put together with visuals that help us on that journey. Feel free to sing along as well. You know, that's allowed. Um, and after that, we're going to celebrate communion, celebrate what Jesus came to do in defeating Leviathan and freeing us from sin and evil and guilt and all that. So let's watch this together in worship of Jesus. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.